Well, good evening, church. It is a real joy to see you all gathered here. And um, thank you, musicians and band, for beautifully leading us. And in fact, that's exactly what we're going to do, is turn our eyes upon Jesus, a passage that is all about him and what he's done and his awesome love. Uh, let's just come to the Lord briefly and pray. Oh, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love. Evident in our brother's testimony, thank you for saving Daniel. Thank you for saving each one who belongs to you here this evening. And as we turn now to look into your face in your precious word, would you prepare our hearts to be filled with a new sense of your love. For Jesus' sake, amen. A quick show of hands. How many of you have had your driver's license for more than 10 years? Okay, that's the majority of you. Interesting. So when you get into your car to come here, when you got into your car to come here this evening, uh, did you think to yourself, this is so exciting. Driving a car, it's a miracle. All those parts working together, if you could afford the fuel, um, and, and, and it drives the prop shaft and the wheels turn and there's gears. It's a miracle. It's amazing. You savored every moment as you got behind the wheel. I guess not. Driving has just become a habit. You don't even think twice about it. If I asked you how often you changed gears or put on your indicators, you wouldn't even be able to tell us. Unless maybe it's a brand new car. That may be slightly different. Um, on our property, we have um, some tenants where there is some excitement about driving a new car. <laughs> Rob is smiling because his daughter Jules has just got her learners. So... You know, I can just see whenever they go out, she says, can, can I drive? And it is something new and exciting for her. Tonight we want to ask the question whether perhaps the same thing has not happened to us in our sense of God's love for us. When we were first saved, we were so aware, we were so excited. We longed to go to service. We longed to go to home groups. We were excited to open our Bibles and pray and meet with other believers and have fellowship. Draw near to God because you were so aware of His love. But then we kind of move past John 3, 16, don't we? Deeper things we become more interested in. And a bit like the honeymoon when it's over, the excitement and thrill of love eases off and becomes a habit we hardly notice. This evening, I hope we can dive briefly into a passage of Scripture together for a refreshing view of God's love. Because, in fact... Please hear me. In fact, our experience and understanding of God's love 
is probably the most critical truth for our Christian life, whatever your circumstances. So let's turn with me, please, then to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, if you've got Bibles with you, um, we're going to just have a look and read together from verse 31. But just before we read, I want to just set the context so that this passage kind of fits and makes sense. In the book of Romans, Paul is writing a long letter, in fact, a long sermon to the Romans because he's not sure if he's going to be able to visit them. So he basically says, I'm writing to you what I'm going to preach to you if I'm able to come to you. Rome was the center of the known universe at that time. And uh, Paul wanted the gospel to be very clear to the church in Rome because of the number of people that visited Rome and all roads lead to Rome, as they said. And uh, he wanted the gospel to be 100% clear there. And so he preached this sermon in writing to the Romans. And um, in 2014 and 15, uh, with this church in home groups, went through the book of Romans together for over a year. And so I'm going to quickly give you a, a quiz for those of you who went uh, to that home group. You'll remember that there were three D's that was in the sermon. You see, Paul was a good Baptist. His sermon had three points, and they rhymed. And so they were basically, I suppose let me switch this on. No, it is on. There we go. I've now clicked too far. There we go. Thank you. So there are the three Ds. The first few chapters, in fact four, were a diagnosis of our depravity. And then the central chapters from 4 through to 12, or 5 through to 12, are a, all about the delightful deliverance of the gospel. And then from chapter 12, there's a description of our response to that gospel, how we should respond to the glory of Christ's work for us. And so those were the three D's. And this chapter that we're about to read now is smack bang in the middle, and that's why it's highlighted in red, of the delightful deliverance portion of Paul's sermon. Many have argued that the book of Romans is the pinnacle of Scripture, one of the main books of the Bible. And many have also argued that chapter 8 of Romans is the mountaintop of the whole the, chapter of the whole Bible. For example, Octavius Winslow said, It would perhaps be impossible to select from the Bible a single chapter in which were crowded so much sublime, evangelical, and sanctifying truth as the eighth of Romans. So we're going to read a passage together, just the verses 31 to 37, the last part of Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? Basically, Paul is now referring 
to everything he said up to then. If God is for us, who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. I think that just about covers it all, doesn't it? will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We want to just look at this passage under two simple headings this evening. God's amazing love, and then secondly, the offense of God's love. So firstly, God's amazing love. Our verse there in, in verse um, 31 in the beginning of the passage says, If God is for us, do you sometimes wonder if God is really for you? What is it that sometimes causes you to question that? Is God really for me. What are the things that prevent us from trusting that truth? Well, probably two things. Um, firstly, what about my sin? What about my sin? When we become aware of our sinfulness, do we not... Are we not tempted to say, how am I worthy of the love of a holy God of the universe? We saw there that the first four chapters of this great book covers the depravity of the human race. Paul spends four chapters proving that. And then he revisits it in chapter 7, just before chapter 8, the last piece where he cries out himself as an apostle, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then Peter fell before Jesus and said, get away from me, for I am a sinful man. He couldn't believe being accepted by Jesus was possible. Paul said he was the chief of sinners. 
unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to even stoop and bend down and, and untie the, the, the buckles of the sandals of the one who is to come. And what did the returning prodigal say to his father when he fell at his feet? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So feeling unworthy, dear friends, is not an unsurprising experience for believers because we are, by nature, children of wrath. I've been a believer by God's grace for 50 years or more now, and God is showing me this personally more and more than, than ever. To quote Tim Keller, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe. Do you believe and feel that reality? Can you say, I am more sinful and flawed than I ever dared believe? Or are you mm, not so sure? There's lots of bad people out there, even in the church. We read about it daily in the news, awful things that happen in the church. And I'm not really one of those real baddies. Is that perhaps where you are? Well, the bottom line is a holy God gave us two main commandments and all the others fit into them. Love me with all your heart and perfectly and your neighbor in the same way. And if we are truly honest before God and as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our very selves, we will know that not for one moment in our lives have we ever fully obeyed that. Each one of us is therefore deserving of eternal punishment. We are on death row, like the worst criminal. That's you and me. And so it's no, it's no a surprise then that we at times are overwhelmed with this sense and we wonder, how can God be for me, this wretch that I am? And then secondly, what else causes us to question whether God is for us? Well, most likely, mysterious trials. What about my trials? Does that not cause me to question if God is for me? Paul was writing this letter when the infamous Nero was emperor in Rome. And uh, he mentions in this passage that we just read a number of uh, possible trials and calamities that became very real under Nero's rule. Verse 36 summarizes it. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not quite our experience today here, is it? But that was a huge trial that uh, the Romans were about to experience. So you may be this evening saying, if God is really for me and loves me, why am I in this world of pain over my marriage, my career, illness that's just been diagnosed in me or in my 
loved one, sudden tragic death of a loved one, painful boss that I have, the awful loneliness that I experience, the dark cloud of depression that hangs like lead in my soul, weighing me down relentlessly. Where is God in this? He cannot be for me. I've faithfully served him and now he has brought this into my life. God is not coming through for me. I can't believe he is for me. Have you been there, dear brother or sister? Maybe you are there this evening. You've lost hope or you are losing hope. Either you, you don't care anymore or you even are angry at God. Our brother shared a time in his life when he experienced that. Now, the whole point of this passage is to prove that if you are a believer, no matter what happens, God is for you. And it's as, if, it's as if Paul is saying, you think God is not for you, and you're battling to trust him. Think again, and I'm going to prove it to you. And so how does he then prove it? Well, read with me in verse 32. I'm just going to summarize. He did not spare his own son, but Gave him up for us all. He then builds and repeats on that. Are you being charged or condemned by Satan or others or circumstances? And what was the answer? Christ Jesus has died. Raised. Ascended. And this very moment, he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. Because of God's finished work done and dusted in the person of Jesus, that's what Paul is saying, the historical facts of the gospel, because of that, nothing can separate a believer from the love of God. No sin, no circumstances. So whatever is on your heart this evening, dear brother or sister, just follow with me here, please, and see if you can say the following with me to yourself. I want to open up a little bit more this proof that Paul is just delighting in with the Romans or to the Romans. Can you say this to yourself? Before I was born, God looked through time and saw me, me, and knowing all my sin and failures and weaknesses, set his love on me before I even existed. That's what the Bible teaches. And then in order to save me and to put that love into practice, God entered the womb and became a fetus in a sinful woman. 
God, the Creator, a fetus, and born into a sin-cursed world for me. For me. He grew up in a sinful family with difficult brothers, we are told, and yet remained perfect for me. He endured the opposition of religious leaders during his ministry, was betrayed by one of his disciples for me. He faced the desertion of his closest friends and disciples that he had trained and worked with and lived with and walked with for three years, and he faced the pain of them deserting him for me. He endured the most awful physical and emotional pain through beatings, mockings, crown of thorns, and a cruel Roman cross for me. He endured the righteous anger and wrath of God who turned his back on him so that me, so that I, who deserve eternal damnation, need never ever face the anger of a holy God. Never. It's done. No more anger towards me. Jesus took it all. He rose from the dead so that I can know new life and not fear death. He ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God to intercede for me right now. That's where Jesus is, interceding for you, Paul says so. And when he comes again in awful judgment, I will not face that judgment, but will live together with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever in perfect bliss. Isn't that amazing? Shouldn't we... Shouldn't we be getting behind like the wheel of a brand new car and getting very excited about this evidence of God's love and it's never going to change because that's what Paul is saying is the proof of it. It's all these things that have actually already happened and because of them, no one can separate you from his love. If he's done so much for you in his love, How's he going to turn back from that ever? No matter what you're going through at the moment. And so as I heard in a talk recently, um, someone said we should change this um, kind of arm bracelet, the what would Jesus do bracelet. Someone made a lot of money from that. And that we should change it to what has Jesus done? What would Jesus do is kind of focused on me and how I must respond to this love of God and how should I make decisions now? No, the main thing is to look out from ourselves and up to him who has already done it. All these things we just spoke of. 
Yes, we must focus on our response, our love to him, the description, the final D of Romans. But where's the primary motivation for that? What's going to cause you to love God more than anything else? A deeper knowledge of him first loving us. Dwelling on and crying out for more awareness and insight of his love proved in Jesus and the gospel. Can you do that? Is this your experience when things get tough with your own sin and with your difficult circumstances? Is that where you go first with Paul? If he gave his son, surely he's going to give you what you need now. So we can say with Tim Keller, Though I am more sinful or flawed than I ever dared believe, I am more loved and welcomed than I ever dared hope. I am. Because he first loved us. You see, God said about Jesus, this is my beloved son. With whom I get angry when he slips up. Does it say that? What does it say? Is God ever angry with his son? Of course not. His son was perfect. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And dear brothers and sisters, if you are a believer, you are in Jesus. And God is looking at you through him and he, you are now his beloved son. And he is well pleased with you because of the cross and the gospel. And so that's why he can go on to say, there is no one, there is nothing that can separate us from the love that has already been proved and completed. And so we need to spend more time this chapter opens with there's no condemnation and it ends with there is no separation from his love. That's where we need to go over and over and over again. It's not something we learned when we were new believers and now we move on. The gospel. The gospel is our daily message to ourselves, brothers and sisters. We sing it quite often. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, like Paul is in this passage, who made an end to all my sin. Hallelujah. We don't even crack an amen, eh? <laughs> I remember Rex Matthew. Uh, great Baptist preacher once in Pinelands Baptist. He was getting all excited and preaching his heart out. And we were typical Baptists just sitting there, and he just flopped over the pulpit and said, my, what Baptists you are. Uh, I won't do that. Um, so when we face hopelessness because of our sin or trials, what must we do? 
What is the solution? The answer is the middle D. Go to that deliverance that is seen in Jesus and the gospel. We must never get past it. Yes, we will feel the pain of living in this world. We will. But in all the mystery of that pain, we can stand on this rock of his unchanging love. And that helps us, as he says later in the passage, be more than conquerors. Because he has conquered everything necessary for our long-term future. And so, God's amazing love. Is God for me? Most definitely. Do you really believe that? And the proof is in Jesus and the gospel, and it's why there's a picture there of Calvary. And so secondly, now just more briefly, we're going to move on to the offense of God's love. So Paul would have us say with the hymn writer, when I survey the wondrous cross on which my Savior died, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So where then is the offense? What rubs people up the wrong way about this love? Let's look firstly then at how the world defines love. How do you think the world defines love today? Well, when you remove a holy God who hates sin, what do you have in your definition of love? Well, an unconditional love expressed perhaps in this way, you must love, respect, and accept me no matter what my choices. If you quote the Bible, which condemns some of these choices because God does, you are guilty of judgmentalism and hate speech. Dear friends, I think we must be aware that the way God, the way the world defines love is not the love of God Paul is speaking about here in this passage or anywhere in Scripture. And secondly, it's rather sad that the world has come into the church. It always happens. There are churches today who call themselves the emergent church. There are kind of no rules, no leadership. We just gather and like love one another, man. And anything goes and there's no such thing as church discipline. And next thing, uh, we have churches that are marrying uh, gay people. We have churches that support the LBGTQ agenda. And they call themselves, that, that, that that's because of love. So rather than the amazing love expressed on the cross in our first point, that emphasizes the truth that sin is real is offensive to God and must be dealt with. That's why Paul goes to the cross. 
God was offended at our sin. And Jesus was bruised for our iniquities. And Isaiah says it was the will of God to crush him. That's rugged love with strings attached. Sin must be dealt with. And he did it to see his offspring out of love for us. He punished his own son. A huge price. So that we can experience this love. Sadly, two Baptist pastors, Stephen Chalky and Alan Mann, in 2002 wrote a book called The Lost Message of Jesus. And in describing the cross, coined for the first time, and now it's fairly common out there, the phrase, divine child abuse. You see, the cross is offensive love. Even those who claim to be believers are saying, how could a God of love inflict pain deliberately on his own son? And many say, yeah, that's true. And they fall for it. <laughs> Just read Romans. Read the whole Bible. God instituted punishment for sin with blood sacrifices for centuries to get us used to the gospel. And so in the description part of Romans, we must understand that there are strings attached. God's love is rugged and has teeth. It's different from what the world says. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And that's why we exhort each other daily and help one another and give each other feedback in our struggle against sin for which Christ died. And if there is refusal to repent from ongoing sin, then the church has to begin processes that are in the Bible that Jesus gave us to, to deal with that sin. And that's offensive. It's hardly practiced in any churches today. So be aware then that this true love of God is different from the love described out there in the world. So the promise, nothing can separate you from the love of God, is not for everybody. If you are not a Christian here this evening, and you have not believed and embraced that list that I walked through about the Lord Jesus Christ, a historical figure, real. If you haven't fled to him because of your sin for your salvation, you are separated from the love of God. And that is a fearful place to be. He is coming again in judgment. You must flee to mercy for mercy and repent of your sin and cling to the Savior so that you can then claim this promise. Nothing can separate you 
from the love of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you have demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to rejoice and to flee to this truth. No matter what our trials, no matter what our changes and pain that we have in this life, no matter what sin we struggle with, point us to the cross. Point us to the finished work of Jesus that we may look into his wonderful face and know the comfort that Paul wanted to bring to the Roman church by this amazing truth. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.